The Blevins Franks Report with Rob Kay of Blevins Franks Wealth Management. It's a Sunday morning, it's Riviera Radio and Rob Kay is waiting in the wings. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Howard. I'm not sure about the wings, but yes, I'm definitely here and uh, (laughs) revved up and ready to go. Well, it's an expression, isn't it? Absolutely. It's just an expression. Well... During the introduction to last week's broadcast, you referred to Labour winning two recent UK by-elections and are now favourites to win the next general election and be returned to power. Your comments prompted lots of listeners to ask what the tax implications of this could be. But before we discuss the UK having a Labour government, what news, financial or other, caught your eye over the past couple of weeks? Well, Howard, just when we thought the oppressive summer temperatures were finally behind us for this year, the number of departments facing facing heatwave warnings more than doubled this week, as temperatures practically across the entire country here in France hit at least 30 degrees. On Tuesday morning, 43 departments, mainly in the north and west of France, faced a two-tier yellow heatwave warning. Monday was the hottest September day ever recorded in France and forecasters described some parts of the country as experiencing quasi-tropical overnight conditions with temperatures not dropping below 25 degrees. During the day, even in the shade, numerous locations recorded temperatures above 38 degrees while one weather station recorded 38.8 degrees. Temperatures are expected to cool from today and return to more seasonal norms and I expect that will be a welcome news for the Scottish rugby team, who've now taken up residence right here locally in Valbonne, for obviously the World Cup, which started on Friday. And it will start again then for Wales and England um, a week on, no, actually, I think yesterday and today, a week next Saturday and Sunday, here in Nice at the Allianz Arena. Now, this week, during a televised interview on BFM TV, Oliver Varane, the French government's official spokesperson, introduced a new political buzzword. But typical of a politician, he didn't elaborate on preferendum or what it means. The word is being seen as a word portmanteau, which is a word that's made by blending at least two other words. The new word combines the sounds and meanings of the originals. The first segment of one word is attached to the final segment of the other word. In this case, referendum and prefer which probably refers to a referendum with more than one question, with multiple possible answers, which I am told are concepts that are are unheard of in French politics. Preferendum is a completely made-up word, and it has no legal precedent. Its two possible meanings are actually illegal under French law. Commentators have speculated that it refers to multiple questions being asked during a single referendum. In French history, there has only been one referendum with more than one question, and that was way back in 1969, and it required a single answer to both questions. Also, a new survey this week has revealed that France has more millionaires than any nation except the USA and China. The annual Global Wealth Report found that on average, the French are richer than the British, which, as you would expect, outraged many on the French left who see the quest for equality as a cornerstone of post-revolutionary France, and one that differentiates it from the UK. The survey found that 53% of the global population had wealth of less than $10,000, while only 1% of the world's population are millionaires. Although the number of millionaires fell globally in 2022 by 3.5 million, 
France bucked the trend and its number of millionaires remained stable at 2.8 million, while the UK's millionaire cohort fell to 2.6 million. The survey also suggested the French economy has outperformed Britain's over the past two decades. In 2000, the average French adult had wealth 106,000 euros, compared to a British adult who had 148,000 euros. Last year, the figures were 312,000 for a French adult compared to 302,000 for a British adult, which I think leads us nicely into today's subject matter, Howard. Yes, well done. So, Rob, first, can you bring our listeners up to speed with what the situation is in the UK and how did it get where it is? Well, uh, the word car crash uh, comes to mind, Howard, and, and, where, and where did this all start is something I've been pondering numerous times over the past few years. I suppose it all started back in 2005 when the Conservative Party elected David Cameron as their party leader. He advocated a more centre-right stance as opposed to the Tories' previous staunchly right-wing platform. As frequently happens in politics and probably in life, the catalyst for Cameron's progress was something that was way beyond his control. In 2007, Tony Blair resigned and Gordon Brown took over as the leader of the Labour Party and therefore the UK Prime Minister. In 2008, Britain fell into recession amid the financial crisis of the late noughties the first recession since 1992, and in May 2010, the Conservative Party subsequently won the general election. But they didn't have a clear majority, so Britain had what was known as a hung parliament, and an allegiance with the Liberal Democrats was sought. Cameron's premiership was probably marked by the ongoing effects of the financial crisis. There was austerity combined with several, several political developments, but I think the history books will show the period between 2010 and 2015 were quite benign, politically speaking. The 2015 general election delivered Cameron and the Conservatives an outright majority, the Tories' first since 1992. Cameron quickly came under pressure from the, from the Brexit's lobbyist, and on the 23rd of June 2016, as we all know, Britain voted to leave the European Union. Cameron had not expected this after he'd campaigned very strongly to remain in the EU. The following day, he resigned and he was quickly replaced by Theresa May. Over the next three years, May's occupancy of Number 10 was dominated by Britain's inevitable journey to the edge of the Brexit abyss. In December 2018 and January 2019, she survived two votes of no confidence in her premiership, but after Parliament rejected three versions of her draft withdrawal agreement, she fell on her sword and resigned on the 24th of May 2019. This left the door wide open for the arrival of Boris. Boris Johnson, as we all know, was the staunchest supporter of Brexit. Britain had supposedly got what it wanted, a leader to drive through the, the majority mandate to leave the European Union, and he wasted no time at all. Due to internal politics, Johnson quickly lost his working majority. Whether that was by design, we'll never know, but it led to him calling a snap general election on the 12th of December 2019 which he won with the biggest majority the Conservatives have had since way back in 1987. With Boris now firmly at the helm, the UK left the EU at 11pm on the 31st of January 2020, but the transition period was quickly overshadowed by COVID-19 and the worldwide pandemic, which resulted in Johnson announcing a total UK lockdown on the 23rd of March. 
Over the next two years, Johnson's star at best could be described as plummeted, and that culminated in his really quite strange resignation on the 7th of July last year, 2022, after which he hung around as the Prime Minister until September, when Liz Truss became the UK's Prime Minister. Truss had been just in her job for just two days before Queen Elizabeth II sadly passed away. Her tenure in number 10 lasted barely longer than the mourning period for the Queen. On the 26th of September, her Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, delivered the mini-budget, which was a complete disaster, and after just 44 days in office, she followed her predecessors and resigned. Now, Truss was quickly replaced by Rishi Sunak, who Truss had narrowly beaten to the top job just a few months previously, and he was probably the person who should have replaced Johnson. Sunak has attempted to bring a little bit more stability to British politics over the last 10 months, but whatever he does, it will be a major challenge for him to survive the next election. As the UK teeters on the branch of recession, once again it looks like a recession and economics will be the catalyst for a change, with Labour picking up the reins of government after 14 years in opposition. I realise it's early days, but what are Labour's plans for the UK economy? Uh, we're talking politics here, so so nothing is for sure. And some of the by-election swings were, were actually due to low turnout and people being disgruntled with the Tories. But Labour is certainly positioning itself for a term in office. Labour leader Keir Starmer and his channel Chancellor Rachel Reeves have been uh, pairing back on Labour's spending commitments and saying as little as possible about tax. Their approach is safety first rather than, rather than promising radical changes. Reeves has dubbed this approach as securonomics, another word portmanteau, and one I expect we'll hear frequently over the next 12 months. Starmer has five missions, apparently, some of which are quite lofty. One of them is to elevate the UK's growth rate to the top of the G7 rankings. Labour has set out a bold economic agenda, which is centred on what has been described as an interventionist industrial policy. The basic concept is... State working in partnership with a dynamic private sector. What they've promised so far are large subsidies for technology and green energy and more workers' rights. But interestingly, it's dropped most of its nationalisation plans. Economically, Labour have pledged not to introduce a wealth tax or target expensive properties. They're going to, not going to increase capital gains tax or put up the top rake of income tax. Reeves strangely stated Labour does not see the way to prosperity through taxation. What have been muted as new sources of revenue are maintaining the fiscal drag introduced by the Conservatives, restricting pension relief to 20%, reforming inheritance tax and maybe replacing it with a gifts tax because that will accelerate their tax revenues. Reeves' statement could easily be slightly disingenuous as we've seen in France, what's in a name? French tax revenue has massively increased through increased social charges, not direct taxation. Labour is rumoured to be thinking along the same lines, which could mean national insurance being levied on passive income, such as savings and investments. Every one pence increase in national insurance contributions could generate Labour, or the Labour government, around £5 billion of revenue. I remember you saying UK residents last paid as much tax as they do now back in the 70s. Is that still the case? Absolutely, Howard. Um, 
People in England, Wales and Northern Ireland pay 20% basic rate income tax on earnings above £12,570. They also pay national insurance contributions where HR 12% of weekly earnings over just £242. The 40% income tax rate kicks in at slightly over 50000 which is when parents also begin to be taxed on their child benefits. The result can be a 60% marginal tax rate for those with two children and actually a 70% rate for those with three. Every £1 earned above £100,000, 50p of the personal allowance is lost and the allowance is completely lost when income exceeds £125,000. That means high-earning taxpayers are paying a marginal tax rate of 60%. Britain has some of the highest taxes on property of any country in the OECD. The UK raises 3.8% of its national income through property taxes. Also, in the UK, VAT is levied at 20% on most consumer purchases. That generates another £140 billion. That's 5% of GDP. No country has a, has a perfect tax system, however, but the deficiencies in the UK system are becoming more and more obvious because the state is taking more and more out of its citizens' pockets. The fiscal watchdog, the Office for Budget Responsibility, has forecast that from 2025, the government will generate around 35% of its GDP from taxes, and that will be the second highest level since the end of the Second World War. But surely if we've moved away from the UK, we've moved away from its current tax turmoil. Well, we, we may have moved, Howard, but if we haven't taken our assets with us, they are still exposed to UK taxes and, importantly, UK tax changes. I completely understand why people do this. Lots of us have moved to France, but we're still Brits. Many of us might not want to live there, maybe for all the reasons I've mentioned this morning, but we're still British and we want to remain British. But far too many of us retain UK assets, property, investments, pensions. I spoke to a couple earlier this week who, post-Brexit, their dilemma is they want to spend more time with their only daughter here in France. But now they're retired, they also want to travel. One solution is to downsize but keep a bolt hole in the UK. That bolt hole will quickly become a very easy target for the, for the UK taxman. Since Brexit, most UK wealth managers are legally not able to advise their European clients but far too many still do, sometimes on the pretext, I'll see you when you're back in the UK. Now that reminds me of 2003 and the introduction of the EU Savings Tax Directive when people would go to Switzerland to see their Swiss bankers and they were not able to take any information or documents away and then the French customs officers carried out random checks on French-plated vehicles at the border as they re-entered France. Many of our listeners are UK nationals who've retired to France. Could they be impacted? The, the answer is like my previous answer. If you've retired to France but you left your pension in the UK, it's vulnerable to changes. Unfortunately for many people, this challenge can't be avoided. I met another couple earlier this week who each had a civil service pension and a teacher's pension. Those pensions will always have to be taxed in the UK. However, the UK assesses taxes on an individual basis, which means he was a higher rate taxpayer while she wasn't even using a UK personal allowance. Through the process of strategic financial planning, we've been able to suppress his UK tax and he's now only paying basic rate tax. What we can avoid is the UK's fiscal drag, which over the next five years will take more and more tax from UK pension payments. The freeze on personal allowances and on bans was introduced by the Conservative Party to generate increased levels of revenue. 
so it's easy to understand why Labour has thus far not, not made any mention of unfreezing that Tory policy. Domicile and UK inheritance tax always seem to crop up in conversations. What can we do to avoid them being an issue? Um, inheritance tax and succession tax are, are frequently described as voluntary taxes, however. I don't completely subscribe to that opinion. In a, in a purely theoretical world, yeah, that's a fact. But most of us want to retain assets, and none of us know where the crystal ball shop is, so it's impossible to know when we'll die, which is obviously an important element when planning to avoid death taxes. I mentioned earlier, if you, if you have a UK property, in fact any UK asset, it is liable to UK inheritance tax when you die. The UK's inheritance tax threshold has not increased since 2009, 14 years ago. And as I said, it's now frozen at its current level until 2028 at the earliest. It shouldn't be any surprise to us to learn that HMRC have collected over 600 million of inheritance tax in just July alone, and actually over £7 billion over the past 12 months. Now, France is no different. It has not raised its succession tax thresholds since Nicolas Sarkozy was, was in power way back in 2011. And when Sarkozy changed the rules, the children's real nil rate band was actually at 180,000 and he reduced it to 100,000. In the UK, inheritance, inheritance tax is paid at 40%. In France, children can pay up to 45% and other beneficiaries up to as much as 60%. That's a 60% tax on monies that have been previously taxed. There are a lot of things we can do to minimise the tax our beneficiaries pay when we die. And the solution is very, very simple. Seek advice. Understand your situation. Learn about your options. Listen to an expert. Then decide what's best for you, your situation and your family. So Rob, overall, what are you advising your clients to do at the moment? <laughs> Howard, Levis Franks is, is now in his 49th year of providing strategic financial advice to, to expatriates, mainly British expatriates, in Europe. Our message today, I, I believe, is as clear and as simple as it was way back in 1975. Financially speaking, France is not the same as the UK. Financial matters may have similar names, but the systems, the workings and how financial matters are dealt with are poles apart. We may have migrated maybe a thousand kilometres south, but for too many of us, our finances are still a million miles away from where they should be. Wherever possible, I've always adhered to the KISS principle. Keep things simple. We all need a plan. It should be as simple and as straightforward as it possibly can be. I don't think Blevins Franks is advising clients any differently these days. It's the challenges that are different because the world we all live in constantly evolves. If you don't have a plan, Tax changes will achieve exactly what they're designed to do. They will take more and more money of your hard-earned cash and drop it into the government's pockets. If you do have a plan, it needs to be continually reviewed and evolve. What we're advising clients to do, Howard, is understand the situation they find themselves in and have their own individual strategic financial plan. So if you'd like to explore your strategic financial planning and check out if it's a good fit for where you're living, and maybe more importantly, how you want to live, speak to one of our Blevins Franks partners. An initial meeting is complimentary, so to arrange a discussion, call our central telephone number, which is 0493 That's 0493 
And if our Monaco office is more convenient for you, you can contact our Monaco office. And the number here is Monaco 97775574. That's Monaco 97775574. And if you'd like to know more about Blevins Franks or you prefer to make contact via the internet, please feel free to visit our website, which is www.blevinsfranks.com. Many thanks. Well, always interesting. I look forward to next Sunday. Thanks very much, Howard. Have a great week. The Blevins Franks Report. If you would like more information on any of the topics discussed in this program, contact your local Blevins Franks office on 0493 or riviera at com. Focusing on the big picture. At Blevins Franks, our financial advisors take a holistic approach. We get to know our clients, your family situation and objectives, and our integrated advice covers tax and estate planning, savings and investments, and pensions. We aim to consolidate many of your assets, keeping things simple for you and your family and heirs. Get in touch with your local Blevins Franks advisors today. Visit BlevinsFranks.com. That's BlevinsFranks.com.